Hi, I'm Paul Jay. This is the Analysis.News podcast. So this is part two of my discussion with Sam Gindon. In part one, which I urge you to listen to if you haven't, we talk about more generally the issues of what's happening with the trade unions in this pandemic moment. And as dire as the crisis is, it's also a moment of opportunity for the mass movement and for the progressive struggle inside the unions to make the unions play a more dynamic, even leading role. There's one example of what could be of a form of struggle, a model that's taking place that I think is particularly interesting. And that's in Oshawa, Ontario, where an idle GM plant is, uh, there's a fight taking place amongst the workers there and people in the community to nationalize the plant and convert it to selling electric vehicle to the government. So it's an actually sustainable model. Uh, But so far, the federal government in Canada has not gone for it. Now joining us once again is Sam Gindin. Sam's been involved in this fight in Oshawa. And he, just for those that didn't hear part one, Sam was the research director of the Canadian Auto Workers, now Unifor from 1974 to 2000. And he co-authored Socialist Challenge Today with Leo Panich and Steve Marr. Thanks for joining us again, Sam. Great to be back. So tell us the Oshawa story. Okay, I probably will have to uh, give quite a bit of background because uh, a lot of people won't know about it, a lot of your listeners. Well, they won't know where Oshawa is. Oshawa is just outside Toronto. <laughs> yeah, which is where I was going to start with. It, it's just outside of uh, Toronto. And uh, at one point, it was actually the largest uh, auto hub that GM had in North America, one of the largest in the world. It used to have uh, three assembly plants that were making 750,000 to 800,000 vehicles a year. It was making radiators. It was making uh, uh, radios. Uh, it had 23,000 workers in that community. And over time, it kept slipping down. And then a year and a half ago, uh, GM announced its closing. And uh, a group of us, including some auto workers, uh, some retirees, uh, the president of the Labor Council, some community members, uh, began to think about what to do. And I think we came to a few very important conclusions. One is that begging GM uh, to bring back jobs was over. This wasn't going to happen. We had to think beyond GM, and we had to start thinking about uh, actually think uh, public ownership. We didn't want another uh, private company coming and repeating this after getting a lot of subsidies. That was one thing. Uh, the second thing is we decided that... Uh, we really wanted to think about going beyond the industry. We shouldn't just talk, think about what can we do that can compete. We wanted to think about something that was socially useful. That uh, and, and we, you know we thought the environment was an obvious issue. We were thinking about uh, uh, equipment for an aging population. Uh, we, we ended up focusing on uh, the environment, and we focused on electrical vehicles. But we didn't want to do this in competition with China and the U.S. and Mexico, we wanted it to be something that was planned. We wanted to create the kind of vehicles that governments were buying so it could fit into their plans, minibuses, uh, postal vehicles, utility vehicles, ambulances. Uh, so we're trying to get out of competition as well. And where it led us to is that we had to think in terms of this question of conversion uh, and the environment. And a big thing we had to think about was uh, a lot of the environmental movement was talking about the environment 
and just transitions and Green New Deal. But it was very abstract. Workers didn't believe it. Like, who's going to give you a just transition? Uh, We didn't have the power to do this. To talk about doing this meant you actually had to talk about challenging private property. You can't plan a just transition if you accept private property and a focus on profits. So, um, so this, this, this gave us a strategic way of engaging workers and trying to maintain manufacturing capacity in their community because ultimately everything depends on having some manufacturing capacity, whatever the social use you have, whatever, however you want to fix the environment and, tra- and uh, 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 save the environment. Uh, that would require certain material things that you'd have to actually be able to make. So it was a way of engaging workers in a way that wasn't abstract, that they could begin to also ask uh, the larger questions. And this question of conversion, we began to move towards seeing it as a major strategic question because it, it linked jobs, it linked the restructuring that people were facing and how you do it in a different way, it linked social use, uh, and a different way of thinking about the purpose of production. It linked having a manufacturing capacity rather than having a capacity that was profitable. In other words, if people wanted to close things that were still socially useful, we felt that, well, we don't want to close it because it's our productive uh, potential. Uh, it linked the environment. It linked planning. Uh, so conversion was so critical. Now, I just want to give a couple of drawbacks and then kind of talk a little bit about where we've been going. The drawback was we had enormous difficulty getting workers on site. I mean, the, the, the strategy that should have been adopted is workers just taking this over and other workers seeing that you're taking this over and getting the same idea because this is going to be happening everywhere. Uh, we didn't have mass support from the workers when we started. And the reason for that is workers had gone through a large series of defeats. Their expectations about what was possible had really been lowered. The union wasn't on site. This was devastating to us because you know, workers saw us as a little rump group. What are you going to achieve? Whereas they looked to the union, even when they were critical, they saw the union as being able to put things on the agenda. And the union thought this was pie in the sky and wasn't supportive. You know, there was no radical movement in the country where we could put a lot of pressure uh, on the companies. So we were stuck with the fact of having to start slow. And a couple of the things we did, is it meant that we had to get this message out publicly into the media, into the community, and start creating a sense of something was happening as a way of attracting workers. We did a feasibility study, uh, which we raised money for, to show that this was all sensible, that there was a market for this, and you could do this, and you could pay decent wages. It was practical. Uh, Given all the money you always give to the corporations, this is more than practical. So we did that, and that was a form of mobilizing. Uh, And then when the pandemic hit, we changed our argument from electric vehicles to the need to create protective equipment for workers, especially for the N95 masks that frontline workers, firefighters as well, but the frontline health workers desperately needed and weren't being made. So to, if I change your argument, you mean the conversion would be not to produce electric vehicles, but produce this uh, equipment, what do they call it, PPE or something like that? That's right. In other words, in the immediate, immediately you could start doing this uh, because the companies had the links and the technical capacity, the engineering capacity to do this. And, but it also meant that uh, we started linking up with uh, health workers. 
we did a cavalcade where we went uh, we went around the hospitals in Oshawa, around the long term care facilities, and then that ended up at the GM plant, and that was very uh, successful. It actually attracted a lot of a lot of workers who before thought we were kind of out to lunch. Uh, we did have a press conference when we had this uh, change uh, with the Ontario Federation of Labor there. We got them to come with the head of the uh, Ontario Hospital Hospital Unions to come that we should make masks. And by coincidence, I think we were part of the pressure, but I don't think we can take all the credit. GM actually began to make masks, but not the masks that were most important in the plant. Now, the problem was that they were uh, only using a very small fraction of the plant with 50 workers when they could be using the whole plant. They were making these masks because they actually needed them themselves when they were going to open uh, auto production in North America and to give to the suppliers uh, when they were going to get to work. But they weren't making the main masks, which is the other problem. So we've had this campaign going on. Uh, what we're trying to do now is to use the credibility that we got from this Oshawa plant to start talking to workers in Windsor, where there's a closing of a shift and now they're getting nervous, and to workers in Oakville, where there's a Ford plant, Windsor is a Chrysler plant, and to start telling people, you've got to start forming committees. You've got to talk, start talking about the worst case scenarios, about what you could convert uh, if worse came to worse. And then we've been also talking to young groups who've gotten actually quite excited. We've gotten a lot of people coming to us from uh, high school movements and uh, college movements and university, and especially the environmental movement. I think the environmental movement is getting the fact that they're not making, you know, they're doing fantastic work in terms of getting the environment on the agenda, but they're not making breakthroughs amongst workers. And if they don't make those breakthroughs, workers can become a barrier to the environmental stuff. So they've been, uh, they've been seeing that they have to find a way of engaging workers. So we've been talking to all the key environmental movements, and we want to have a meeting in uh, mid-July where we'll bring kind of a summit. We'll bring representatives from all these groups together. And by the way, we're also talking to uh, people in Alberta about the closing of oil and what's going to happen to Alberta, to environmentalists and people who are interested in conversion who've contacted us because of our uh, feasibility study. So we'd like to get people together with representatives from everywhere, uh, update them on our, our experience and its strengths and its limits. Because if, if we don't become bigger, we can't win these things. And becoming bigger is actually a way of winning locally as well. It's a way of making people locally feel like this is relevant. And then, you know, use the national connections everywhere and use unions where at least to sit in and listen uh, to get them interested because of their national uh, structures. Uh, to start having things happen elsewhere and to start thinking that, well, maybe the question of conversion is can be at the core of a major strategy on the environment. You know, that's, this would involve fighting for a national convergency, convergence agency that instead of closing plants, you transform them. And maybe you transform plants that are making things they shouldn't be making uh, to have in each location uh, – a uh, research on the environment and technology center that thinks about what you could be making in that community uh, and hiring thousands of young, you know, hundreds in each location of young engineers, but hiring, you know, thousands across the country uh, and having, you know, environmental committees in each community saying, shift, what do we really need in this community? And how do we fight around the environment and producing for the environment? We've used the slogan, essential services, essential equipment, to start li linking both, you know, that we can make the, essential equipment that 
frontline workers make, but this begins to, once you start talking this way, the environmentalists can see, hey, that fits with what we want to talk about in terms of the environment and linking needs and uh, production around the environment. Because, you know, I just want to emphasize if we're going to fix the environment, it isn't just a question of slowing down climate change. It's about fixing everything we've already done. It means changing everything about how we live, work, play, travel, And changing all those things includes material things. And of course, it includes cultural things. And where the cultural things are so important is it means that things, it doesn't mean that we have to reduce our living standard. It means that we have to redefine it. If we start thinking that it's more important to have public spaces, better health, a richer education, more, uh, you know, more art, uh, more green spaces, uh, you know, developing other parts of our capacity. So it's not just about how you consume things, but how you consume, uh, you know, all kinds of things and how you do them. Uh, then it's a different kind of lifestyle that we're talking about. But that relates, again, to expanding the public sector, to thinking about the public sector differently. Uh, so that's kind of what we're doing. And I think that uh, I don't want to exaggerate what we're doing, but I think the point about it is, all the limits we're coming up against keep pushing us to thinking in more class terms, in more alliances, in, in terms of how to deal with the more difficult questions that keep coming up. Uh, I might men- mention one that I guess we haven't talked about now or before. One of the real things that disciplines us all the time is this question of capital being able to move. And you know, we went out of the financial crisis and we gave capital all this money. And then when it was over, they were stronger. We went just went back to normal. This time, people aren't even criticizing finance very much, partly because uh, Main Street's also getting some money. But we should come out of this fin- crisis by saying that, look, uh, ultimately, we want finance to be utility. But if we can't get there yet, why don't we have some pre- quid pro quos? One quid pro quo was to, would be to say, we're going to put a levy on every financial institution, and we're going to put that money into uh, infrastructure reconstruction, especially the environment and convergence structures. We're going to use that in a social way. And the second thing is we ultimately have to say, you can't in a democratic society just decide that you don't like the way things are going, so you're going to leave. We're going to prevent that from happening. And part of this is, in, in physical terms, saying that when corporations decide to close, that's undemocratic. Uh, and we're going to challenge that. And, you know, if we have the strength to do it, we're going to expropriate it. If we don't have the strength, we have to uh, compromise. Okay, but we're going to start using it in a different way. So it's all about trying to build different kinds of uh, productive capacity so we actually know how to do things because we don't actually know how to do all these things. We don't learn them under capitalism, including how to control finance. So we have to develop those capacities. But above all, it's the question that you keep raising, which is how do you develop the political capacities? And it's a process. But you have to think big so you get in, so so you confront these issues and then keep growing. When you were organizing in Oshawa, or as you organize in Oshawa, did you get further in terms of support from the workers who were now, I guess, they're unemployed or some that were still there? I mean, how many how many workers are still working there? Just the 50 making masks? Is that it? There's the 50 to 60 making masks. There's There was a promise of 300 at the end of this year, which, you know, I, I is very iffy whether it'll happen. It's some, you know, it's 
making some uh, components. I mean, you know, there's, there's a question of, you know, doing a small thing in a plant that is so giant, uh, uh, you know, it's 10 million square feet, right. isn't going to last very long. The company's going to... I mean, a few a few years ago in Chicago, this is, must go back at least ten years or something. There was workers took over a, a, a plant that was being closed down, that was I think producing windows or something like that, and it became real cause celeb. And you'd think you'd need a triggering event like that to really kick things off. You do, but you have to, you know. In that case, as an example, the workers took it over. There was about 250 workers. It became a cost celeb. Everybody on the left constantly used it as an example. What ultimately happened was uh, it ended up to be a worker co-op. The workers weren't guaranteed the minimum wage because it was no, there were no longer workers. There were owners. So their wages fell really drastically. It fell to a fraction of the workforce. It fell down to 75, and then I think it – I think it's even just a few dozen now. And people stopped talking about it. But the lesson from it was that you have to do these things, but you actually need state support to do it. You needed the state to say, we're going to create a market for you. You know, that's why we were trying to do this feasibility study to say there is a market and it's linked to the environment. So you have to have, you, you can't just take it over if you're just then going to have to compete and deal with what, you know, capitalist markets are. So it does require that kind of militancy, but it also requires that that militancy be linked to larger demands from the state. Uh, in terms of you know, your question about workers, we're getting more interest now, but I don't want to exaggerate it because what, what happens is workers, we're still not at the point, you know, workers now are saying that's a good idea, but I don't think you'll be able to put it off. You know, they don't see the NDP making it a major issue in parliament. They don't see their union talking about it. Uh, you know, we got some very good stories, but it's hard to sustain it unless you are doing things like taking over a plant. So, you know, there's some sympathy growing. But the other thing that begins to happen, a lot of workers actually went through major depressions when this finally happened. And what they're afraid of doing is getting their hopes up again. They don't want to start thinking, okay, I'm going to get an active in something that's got, you know, one chance in a hundred. Yeah, logically, it's worth it. Why not take it? You're unemployed anyways. But people don't want to go through the psychological experience of getting their hopes up and then getting dashed again. They're trying to figure out how do they survive. So it does raise the question of you need to transform unions and you need a rebellion in unions so that uh, when people see this, they say, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we thinking about where the future is going and doing this? And uh, so... You know, all these kinds of things need to become to come together for these things to happen. It, it, it's a process, and this the environment puts it on the agenda, but also this particular moment puts it on the agenda. We were so unprepared for this moment. Why don't we say uh, we're also unprepared for the environment? What are we actually doing? So we're not caught suddenly by saying, hey, we don't even have the manufacturing capacity to make the things that the environment is going to need. So, you know, these are big questions, but there's also things that can be started and create that dynamic. All right. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks, Paul. Great to talk. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.